The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words, roughly paraphrased from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. This week, we're going to look at maybe the origin stories of a monster, because monsters can sometimes be sympathetic figures. Even someone like Darth Vader, you know, had a rotten childhood and the, or Dr. Doom, you know, uh, suffered misery when he was a child. And so he, there's a figure in the world of uh, media and culture who um, has been saying and doing a lot of fairly monstrous things, uh, but it's worth tracking um, who that is. And I'm talking about uh, Dr. Naomi Wolf as uh, she is often styled, um, the sort of um, cultural critic uh, who came to fame in the 1990s as the author of The Beauty Myth and has had a very checkered career as a sort of political commentator, but more recently in the age of COVID has become one of the leading sort of anti-vax voices and, and beyond that has sort of aligned yourself with a kind of anti-systems politics, very uh, close to figures like Steve Bannon. And She's not uncommon. This is not totally unique trajectory to her. I think what we've seen over the last decade, and it precedes COVID, is that certain figures in public life, but also a lot of people in our own private lives, have become unmoored. They're people who sort of broadly started from uh, left of center politics, uh, but for a variety of reasons, became disenchanted or attracted to um, a more radical anti-system politics that sometimes includes um, aligning with um, fairly sinister right-wing figures. And we'll, we'll talk about who some of these other figures are, but this is, this is a real trajectory with Naomi Wolf. And uh, the reason to talk about her is that there's a new book that has just been released by Naomi Klein. It deals with Naomi Wolf. And the coincidence of the first names of the two authors is not at all a coincidence. And I'll just put some cards on the table here, which is that I've known Naomi Klein since we were both uh, undergraduates at the University of Toronto. I once crashed a party that she and her glamorous husband, Avi Lewis, threw at Queen Street, which featured a lot of models from Much Music. Later, when we were both living in Toronto at the same time, my eldest daughter and uh, her son uh, are roughly the same age, and we had playdates. And w one of the topics that came up in those playdates was Naomi Klein's Bet Noir, her unfortunate double, which is the fact that many people have mistaken Naomi Klein for Naomi Wolf. Um, and th this was like pre-COVID, but already Naomi Wolf was saying unfortunate, um, regrettable things that Naomi uh, Klein did not want to be associated with. Uh, but uh, at that period, um, Naomi uh, Klein, you know, both in our conversations and then in her sort of occasional, very sly tweets, you know, we would kind of just like laugh this off. Like, you know, like this is just like, you know, one of those annoying things that happens in life. I'm thinking about there's a, a liberal writer named Michael Cohen who shares the same name as Trump's former lawyer. And he often has to deal on Twitter with people who are saying like, you know, how could you work with a monster like Trump? And that's a kind of, a you know, that level of annoyance of having a same or similar name with someone notorious. You know, it's unfortunate. But why write a book about it? I mean, that seems much. But I, I think Naomi Klein's book is well worth justifies itself because it's not just about uh, Naomi Wolf. It's the Naomi Wolf is uh, treated as a symptomatic figure of something larger, something that actually does implicate both Naomi Klein and all of us, which is a sort of the age of sort of atomization and social fraying and how that's changing us. And I was thinking about all this because of an excellent review 
in the New Republic by my former uh, colleague there, Laura Marsh, who's the literary editor of that uh, esteemed journal. And uh, Laura discusses the book, discusses the two Naomi's, the two Naomi problem, and but also discusses what what are, you know are the larger political and social forces that are are causing people to become unmoored, and and we, we, which are I think actually really central to any sort of politics going forward to figure out what's going on, how to talk to these people, how to maybe rechannel some of their energy in more productive ways, and how how to you know reweave the social fabric so that you know we live in a, a slightly less crazy world so anyways i'm very happy to have laura on so laura let's just talk about let's just talk start talking first about naomi wolf a little bit so so mm-hmm. so what exactly is going on with naomi wolf oh i mean that's that could be its own book naomi <laughs> wolf i think best known as the author of the beauty myth but has written many books over the years was, a, I think, a columnist or at least a frequent contributor to The Guardian. And I think that most people who haven't spent much time thinking about her just assumed, oh, yeah, she's sort of a prominent feminist, comments on politics. And then over the years, she has flirted with various conspiracy theories before COVID. But I think people had tended to kind of just brush those off mm-hmm. and kind of say, well, you know, she she mostly writes about feminism or politics. And this is just like one weird opinion she has that's kind of off to the side. Yeah, no, no, I, that, that's right. And I, I think like, you know, generally, and I think this is not about politics in general, but in, in my personal experience, I generally allow my friends two weird opinions. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, like, like you know, you have someone you get along mm-hmm. with and they think the Earl of Oxford wrote uh, Shakespeare, like, oh, okay, you know, like, that's your little hobby. I think uh, there was a kind of spirit of indulgence to Naomi Wolf. Although I, I think, you know, I want to just flag this one point, though, that there's something a little bit disturbing about the fact, you know, in retrospect, that there's a kind of elite media with a liberal orientation that kind of protected her a little bit. And I'm thinking particularly about the uh, book she wrote about female sexuality in the vagina. I had a friend who had to review that book and she found it appalling. And the but the editor didn't want a review that was a debunking. So they eventually the, the magazine posted a kind of a friendly profile. And that always struck me as like, well, you know, like it seemed like as so often in so many industries, there's, you know, like you're, you're, if you're made, you know, people protect you, right? And so, so there was, I, I don't know if you think it's fair, like you think there was a kind of like sort of conspiracy to kind of shield Naomi uh, Wolf hmm. from her worst impulses, the, the consequences of her worst impulses. Uh, yeah, I don't know about reviews. We, we were just discussing this before the show, and I remember that when that vagina book came out. I was working at the New York Review of Books and Robert Silvers, who is the editor, published a very critical review of it mm-hmm. by Zoe Heller that was on the front cover and it was a big deal. Though I think you're right, the fact that that was seen as such a bold move by the New York Review of Books maybe yeah. says something about the esteem in which Nomi Wolf was held at the time. And I also think that if publications were willing to continue working with her even after she had said some quite alarming things. Yeah, maybe there is an element of publications wanting to work with someone who has a big platform and who was prominent, you know, in, in the 90s when the beauty myth came out, Naomi Wolf was on TV talking about feminism like she was on Charlie Rose talking about a book. And that's sort of a rare platform for an author to have. So I think that buys you a lot of goodwill in publishing and in media. 
and, and she and was like a, pe- an advisor to like uh, Vice President Al Gore in yes. his election campaign in a kind of regrettable way. I think there was some sort of thing about her suggesting he wear earth tones and that that kind of there's a minor minor kerfuffle about that. But still, like right, those right. are the circles that she was running in, right? Like you know, like yeah. Uh, and so I think that she had a fair amount of goodwill that had built up from the earlier part of her career and that maybe that's why it took people longer to sort of put pieces together and say a lot of the things that she is now talking about a lot are not helpful. But that really changed with COVID because she yeah. began talking about vaccines and their dangers all the time. And I <laughs> yes. think that was pretty clear to most people that this was really worrying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, to sort of get the, there's a sort of pre-COVID, post-COVID Naomi Wolf. I just wanted to flag, because I I really love this. There's this kind of tweet that she did in 2019, just on the eve of, you know, the pandemic, which is about the sort of, you know, 5G computer systems. And uh, she tweeted, it was amazing to go to Belfast, which does not yet have 5G, and feel the earth, sky, air, human experience, feel the way it did in the 1970s. Calm, still peaceful, restful, <laughs> natural. Now, uh, the, the, what I love about this tweet is the implication that uh, Belfast of the 1970s was calm, still, peaceful, mm-hmm. restful, and natural, which I, I, I think people who live there, historians, anyone who knows anything, might challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that tweet calls for a copy of Patrick Radenkeefe's Say Nothing to be mailed. <laughs> That's right. Nemi Wolf. Yeah, but, but, but again, that... That sort of thing, which she did quite a bit, well, it was kind of like indulged. It was like, you know, that's just like, and I we off being a little bit eccentric. But I, I think obviously COVID raised the stakes of everything because if you have a pandemic and if you have, you know, health measures and debates about health measures that have life and death consequences mm-hmm. for people, like, you know, having a prominent public person say things that are like loopy is, is not good, right? Right. Uh, and I think raise the stakes is that's actually what the turning point was, because like you mentioned, the Belfast thing was before COVID. And the other thing that I think we should acknowledge that was before COVID was what happened with her book, Outrages, mm-hmm. uh, which was the book in which she claimed that gay men were being executed in Victorian England and it turned out this was completely incorrect and it all hinged on the misreading of a legal term Mm -hmm. and she the way this came out was that someone asked her about it live on air on radio in the UK which is like literally a nightmare I mean imagine imagine yeah no no it created a very bad viral moment and there was you know like you know, so something that is kind of funny at the time, but there's a, like if you think about it in human terms, like horrible if you're the center of it. You know, mm-hmm. like a widespread mockery of her. Yeah, I know it's just it was, it was very bad. And I believe the book was pulped, right? Like the it was uh, pulled, yeah. And and I think it was like either the week of publication or like the week before publication. So it had received some reviews, but then it never actually appeared. It was this sort of ghostly non-publication of her book. Yeah, and then I—I I mean, that's got to be like a major uh, sort of life event for an author, you know, like someone who's like uh, on this sort of public stage. And um, I mean, I, I think you know, um, in your review, you kind of uh, quite rightly point to it as a sort of turning point. Um, but in some ways, if if we see that, you know that as a kind of nadar, like her COVID views as you know, like wrong and dangerous as you and I might think of it were actually like good for her like they actually like Mm -hmm. made her allowed her to you know find a new audience and to you know reclaim her reputation not among the people who were reading her before 
but maybe like you know like win a new and i think quite possibly like bigger audience oh yeah and definitely a more devoted audience Um, And I think that's a dynamic that we've seen a lot in the last like five or six years when you see people who've been quote unquote canceled. Uh, What's the next move? Well, one thing you could do is actually desert the people who have canceled you or found you, you know, not found your behavior to be unacceptable and switch to the right because there's always the chance to be embraced by people who don't care about the truth or don't care about, you know, ethical behavior. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I would add further to that dynamic is, I mean, there's somebody, I forget who said it, but there's a, uh, an adage, you know, the left is always uh, looking for heretics and the right is always looking for converts. And and there are like sort of figures on the right, especially I think of Steve Bannon, were like very good at sort of like, you know, picking out um, disaffected liberals and disaffected leftists and thinking like, oh, you know, th- there's someone we can pick up for our side mm-hmm. and grow our side and, and use them to like maybe expand the reach of our message. So I, I think that's also like, it's not just something that happens accidentally. Like I think there, there, there are definitely political forces that are eager to capitalize on this. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, I want to be, because uh, your review is very good on this. I, I just want to like mention some of the stuff that she had actually like said just to make clear what her views on COVID mm-hmm. were, you know, like, you know, Anthony Fauci was Satan, that children who wore masks lost the ability to smile and that vaccines were quote software platform that you can receive uploads. And finally, like, uh, or not, uh, well, there's one more, but before that, that there was like vaccines would deliver nano particles. <laughs> I, I assume nanoparticles. There was a typo for nanoparticles. Yeah. yeah, that allow you to travel back in time, which I have to say, like, if sounds cool, awesome, cool, cool, yeah, yeah, I, I'd love and to. Like, the CDC is like, oh, we also do time travel now. Infectious yeah, yeah. diseases and time travel. Yeah, my, my vaccine did not, you know, <laughs> allow me to go back and witness Marilyn Monroe uh, mm-hmm. performing on stage. So bad on the, the vaccine. But yeah, you had mentioned, I think, that, like before we started recording, what's her latest foray into childhood medicine? Uh, well, I just checked in on the Dr. Naomi Wolf Twitter account, which is back on Twitter since Elon Musk bought it, just to see if she had no reaction to this whole wave of coverage of Naomi Klein's book, which is largely about Naomi Wolf. And she she hasn't responded to it at all, but she's still writing. She has a sub stack. And her latest post is about her observation that babies are now expressionless. <laughs> and some kind of conspiracy theory that babies are not making facial expressions anymore, which just struck me as incredibly bizarre because anyone who's been around newborn babies knows like they cannot physically smile they do not have the facial muscles to smile and like a baby's first smile is like one of those milestones that you like write down in the little book that's right, right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no 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 it, it is yeah and yeah and i think that that's actually like linked with the earlier comment that masking is preventing children from smiling and i'll just say like you know as the father of three girls all of whom wore masks quite vigorously during the thing you know they have not lost the ability to smile like that is not so bad okay so you know there's a kind of danger which which maybe we've sort of fallen into but i I want to flag it which is like the things that she says are so wrong-headed and Mm -hmm. so like absurd that like you know there's a kind of tendency to just like laugh 
and say like, you know, what happened to Naomi? And I, I feel like it's, it's, you know, it's linked to that sort of liberal tendency to think that you can, you know, fact check your way into political victory, right? Like you can just right. like point or out that's a... The other yeah. danger is that you fall into the like Hillary Clinton posture of, oh, the, these are the deplorables, right? These are deplorables. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And and I think what's really uh, great about Naomi Klein's book and your review is that it doesn't settle on that trap or it doesn't fall into that trap, but actually, you know, sees the sort of human drama that has like a much wider significance and that implicates really all of us. So do, do you want to like, what is a kind of sort of sympathetic account um, or a more empathetic reading of Naomi Wolf that, that can like, you know, treat her as more than just like, you know, this this writer that just started to say kooky things. Well, I think there are two parts to that story. So one is just the kind of narrative of her career. So we already talked about some of the ways in which she was publicly mocked for mm-hmm. well-intentioned work that she did, I think, in good faith. And she made good faith mistakes in her research, right? So with the outrageous book, I don't think she intended to mislead anyone or to spread untruths. She She got it wrong. Yeah. And it was really embarrassing and kind of career ending. It's like pretty hard. I don't know what would have happened had she tried and managed to write another serious book, but it would be hard to get a publisher on board mm-hmm. with with another serious book after making a mistake on that scale and after incurring the kind of loss that comes with having your book pulped. So there's that kind of like personal transformation, right? Like you go from humiliation to a different form of being accepted in a community. And in this case, it was the kind of anti-vax right wing that has embraced her. And then there's a deeper story, which sees Nomi Wolf as part of a larger movement of people who have started out as broadly liberals and been drawn towards this more conspiratorial fringe. And I think to understand why that's happening, it makes sense to like look a little bit more at some of the claims that she's been making. So we talked about the expressionless babies, the children who can't smile because of the masks. A lot of the things she has said about the vaccine evoke a kind of world in which people have become like zombies mm-hmm. and there's no connection and society is kind of fractured and we're all being controlled by forces we can't see. So she's she's sort of put her finger on some form of social malaise there, right? The reasons that she's providing are ludicrous. It's, this is not happening because of vaccines. But what Naomi Klein tries to sort of draw out in the book is that there are actually really big problems in society. It's not that children can't smile, right? <laughs> but people are kind of on their own yes. in that it's really hard to get healthcare. It's really hard to get housing. If you lose your job, you're basically screwed in this country. So there is a kind of a diagnosis of of the ills of society and conspiracies offer people one way of making sense of those. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's that's right. That both her and I, I mean I think more broadly, like the other sort of conspiracy theories that too often just get dismissed as sort of forms of madness, like do contain a sort of kernel of social truth. Leo, as Mark said of a religion, there's a sort of, you know, like a a, a false covering containing a real kernel. Mm-hmm. And the, the task of criticism is to reach that real kernel. Yeah, so, and I so, think so, if, you, if you look at vaccine conspiracies specifically, mm-hmm. they make a specific kind of sense. And again, Naomi Klein talks about this in the book, 
we live in a society, well, you don't because you live in Canada and the healthcare there is way better. And I come from the UK where, again, it's yeah. it's like a lot better. But in the US, you're, you are constantly told your health is your problem. Yes. If you get cancer and you don't have health insurance, good luck. You know, so it's on you to exercise. It's on you to eat the right foods. It's on you to make sure you have a job that can get you insurance. Everything is hyper-individualized. And I think that a lot of these fears about the vaccines key into that really intense anxiety that people have been trained to have, that like, this is my body and every choice I make is incredibly consequential and I can't trust anyone else. And if I'm healthy, then that's something I have and that I should protect. I'm like, why should I get vaccinated just to protect other people? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, almost like if you think about it, like, how can a society that doesn't provide universal health care ask people to get vaccinated? Like, like you're saying, like, you know, we won't as a society make sacrifices to ensure your health, but you have to make like, you know, a possible sacrifice for like a you know vaccine that may or may not be reliable because it's for the greater good. You're asking individual self-sacrifice in, in a context where like, you know, there's no social sacrifice that's being made on behalf of the individual. Um, yeah, and I th- and the way Naomi Klein puts it in the book is that the pandemic called for forms of solidarity that people are just not used to mm-hmm. enacting in this country and have in yeah. fact been warned against. Yes, yes. And actually, I mean, that ties in with the wellness stuff because I think that's also a very important kind of pathway. And now, you know, because there has been this kind of linkage or this sort of pathway between the wellness industries towards anti-vaccination stuff, mm-hmm. people are, you know, like souring on the wellness culture. Uh, but like, if we step back a little bit, and I think Naomi Klein's criticism points in this direction, like the wellness stuff itself is symptomatic of an mm-hmm. individualistic culture that you have, you know, in a culture where, you know, you, you, you yourself are responsible for your health, then something like wellness, the wellness uh, industries makes sense. And they already, they, they were created by an individualist culture and they, then they reinforce that individualism to like a much greater extent. And, you know, like it leads to a kind of atomization and freeing of the social, which, which in which vaccination makes no sense. Literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think that's not to say that the things that make up wellness culture are in themselves individualistic, right? Mm-hmm. So no one is saying like yoga is an indicator for becoming conspiracy theorists. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with yoga. Mm-hmm. But when you give wellness the kind of centrality that it has in our culture and when these practices become like all-encompassing and become a worldview, that's when people are very susceptible to conspiracy theories. I mean, it is interesting, like, uh, things like wellness, they become individualistic in the context of a market society, right? Like, oftentimes they're taking, like, very valuable holistic views of health that, you know, come from uh, especially other cultures, and in those cultures aren't necessarily individualistic. But, Mm -hmm. like, once they're brought into the sort of, you know, North American context or the Western context, of like, you know, individual self-realization. And, uh, you know, this is how you have to look after yourself, do self-care. They, they, they tend to, I mean, I, I, I think that they, they uh, do take on that extremely personalized coloration, which puts them at odds with solidarity. Right. And also in the US, and I think in, in other Western cultures too, there's a big influencer 
community mm-hmm. in these wellness in wellness culture. So you have people who are like yoga influencers who have fans and who have the ability to affect people's views on on other stuff beyond just yoga. Like it could be vaccines, for instance. Mm-hmm. So you have these kind of cults of personality as well. And then the other part of it that Klein points out in the book is that people who work in wellness offer, often are basically offering in-person services. Mm-hmm. So if you work at a gym or if you are a yoga instructor or offer some form of therapeutic massage, these were things you couldn't do during lockdowns and stay-at-home orders. So there was a real material Mm-hmm. effect on those people's lives more than the lives of people like you and me who are like well you know we're still blogging yeah. away or doing our editing on the laptop these people really felt the effects of those lockdowns felt to be incredibly unfair felt ignored left behind and and that really supercharged the anti-public health anti-vax yeah. sentiment yeah, no, no. And there's a kind of very specific class element of this, which again sort of points to this kernel of legitimate complaint, which is that there is like an argument to be made that the way the pandemic was handled, like really favored like large corporations and where it did a real disservice to small business. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, like in the pandemic, you know, even when things were working well, you know, you had you saw, you saw like this massive shift towards big tech. Mm-hmm. Of things like skip the dishes sort of taking off. Right. And Amazon, right? And conversely, like, yeah, it was exactly the sort of small business proprietor. You know, even if they receive like a few, you know, small loans or whatever, they're they're not like benefiting to like anywhere this they're not being protected anywhere the same degree that I, I think big business was. And there was a kind of centralization of the economy that was going on. And so and and this is where like it gets very tricky for the left. And I, I think Naomi Klein in her book and in her general politics is still wrestling with this because, you know, like if you're coming from the left, you have a critique of all that mm-hmm. and also critique of the, you know, the role of big pharma and the way that, you know, they're taking these public goods, vaccines that were like literally, you know, created <laughs> by public dollar, even in the cases of like pharmaceutical companies that, oh, we didn't take government money, but still the whole infrastructure of medicine mm-hmm. is created by the state. And there's a, there's a very powerful left critique of that. And the thing that the, the difficult needle to thread is like, how can you make that critique without falling into the Naomi Wolf conspiratorialism, right? And and I think that this is something that, you know, like Naomi Klein is wrestling with. Like, how do you be Naomi Klein and not turn into Naomi Wolf? <laughs> right? Well, yeah. And I think it's the, another related question is how do you make those arguments, which I think Naomi Klein is an incredibly skilled writer who can make those arguments without straying into anything conspiratorial and she's very careful and she's very well sourced in everything she writes. But the problem is you can't affect the way people read it. And if they already kind of think you're Naomi Wolf because they've seen some <laughs> tweets and that you've written this other stuff, right? It all just gets kind of goes through the meat grinder and comes out as this weird cloud of of mistrust and unknowing. And I think that she writes in the book that she almost felt like she couldn't do some of the reporting that she wanted to do during the pandemic because she was worried about how it would be taken and that it would appear to be stacking up on the side of the anti-public health or uh, mistrusting government types. And nothing she could do in terms of actually writing it and making sure that it was clear and that it was well-sourced would really change that significantly. 
Yeah, no, I think I think I think that's right, and I think it it's a long-standing problem on the left because there's ways in which the left's critique of capitalism, if taken in the wrong way, can become conspiratorial. I mean, you know, there's the, the famous adage that anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. That is mm -hmm. to say, you know, the, the, the socialist critique of finance capital can be taken by people who are like, want to avoid a broader critique of capitalism and just like scapegoat a few people and then be turned into a, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And so, I mean, this is like a, a, a real problem. And yeah, I mean, I'm not sure you know, I, it seems like to me that there's no really good solution because, you know, you can try to avoid maybe talking about some of this stuff, but then you're kind of leaving the field of critique to the cranks, right? Like mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're leaving the fact that they're very big systematic problems and the only people talking about it are Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf. <laughs> right. Well, Did say you about this. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I really liked about yeah. the book was that it didn't just diagnose, but it does actually try to offer real solutions. Mm -hmm. The first thing that she says is that, well, we don't talk about this stuff and we just leave it to Naomi Wolf and Steve mm -hmm. Bannon. That's even worse. When we stop talking about stuff, the right starts. And there are issues that they own now that actually like liberals should, leftists and liberals should be able to talk about and should be able to define but then the other part is that the, the later part of the book really focuses on, okay, what would it take to move this problem out of being a discussion about truth and information hygiene and like what is the nature of reality to actions? And basically what she is recommending is like a broad social democratic program to include people in society, provide for people's needs and build trust through actually giving people stuff. Uh, which isn't the most original solution, and I'm not entirely convinced it would work, though I like to think it would, but that is at least some action. Like, we're not going to get out of this by just debating the terms. And, you know, like you said, fact-checking our way out of it. Yeah, I know, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, I, mean, I do think, like, you know, you know I mean, the difficulty is how do you get from A to B? But I, I think it's broadly true that the the issue of social trust is built on like having a functioning society mm -hmm. and that, you know, like both the United States, like coming out of the New Deal and the sort of, you know, mid-century liberalism and Europe after the war, like they were able to like, you know, pull back from the sort of darker impulses of polarization and extremism by actually giving people stuff, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like people have like jobs and like, you know, meaningful lives and, you know, don't have to worry about like, that, that you know, like a, a wrong diagnosis could like ruin their families. That they're less, much less likely to be be drawn to you know the siren call of extremism. I, I think that just like I mean to me like uh, yeah yeah it's partially you're you're preaching to the um, mm -hmm. uh, the converted already. But I mean like that just makes common sense, right? Like I, I don't even know. I'm sure there there are arguments that uh, liberals can make against it, but it, but it does seem like uh, a, a good formula to me. Well, yeah, and a really interesting point she makes in the book, which I didn't entirely get to engage with just because space is limited and there was a lot to unpack in this story, is that there's been so much conversation about the right kind of use of alternative facts, post-truth, fake news, right? And she doesn't try to both sides that, but she does make the point that liberal politicians and often talk about programs mm -hmm. that sound fantastic or they use words as intended with their intended meanings, right? They're saying things that are not incorrect or don't mm. warp the facts, but they actually have no intention on following through. 
So a politician who tells you that they want to improve the healthcare system and they want to fight big pharma, but then doesn't do it is also breaking social trust. And if we want to get out of this situation, then we have to actually start doing the things we say we're going to do. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right, and that that is the exact opposite of you know fact checking the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's actually looking at the truth is created in a social context where people have trust, and you actually have to have a material basis for a society where people trust each other and can rely on each other, and that's something you you can you have to build. You can't just you know make a list of all the wrong things that Donald Trump or Naomi Wolf have said. Like that that doesn't really get you anywhere, right? Right, right. Like you need a, you need a political program beyond just like, well, we're the party that respects facts. You also have to be, we're the party that does things that improves your life. Yeah, yeah. And this is why, I mean, like it's so fascinating, both the Naomi Klein's book and, and your review, like they, you know, open up to, I think, all these very central political questions, because it, I think it is exactly the case that this unwillingness to deliver on, on the material is the, is the you know, unacknowledged source of the problem. And that it's all too easy to kind of demonize a figure like, you know, Naomi Wolf or Trump as, you know, the spreader of lies. And if we just like, you know, uh, convince people the truth, everything will be uh, mm-hmm. uh, well. You know, it, it is the sort of, you know, America is already great argument. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> Like yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I mean, I, 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 I think well, yeah. One thing I'm very grateful for, both in the the book and uh, and your review, is that uh, it is not based on the idea that America is already great. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what gives this book a twist on a lot of like traditional doppelganger stories, where really the narrative is like, okay, you got to hunt down the doppelganger, slay the doppelganger, and then it's all good. Her book is not about that. It's not about well, if I could just overcome this Naomi Wolf problem. <laughs> everything would be fine because the, the problems are really thoroughgoing. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I guess the, 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 to maybe talk about the ideological dimension of this, because I think there's a, a great point in your review that you highlighted uh, is that it's a broader phenomenon of, you know, people who are sort of coming out of um, a liberal or less liberal background, sometimes libertarian left, who gravitate towards the anti-systems politics of the right or think they can make mm-hmm. a productive alliance with the anti-system politics of the right. And uh, I'll just name some names like like Glenn Greenwald, uh, Matt Taibbi. And, you know, like if one is looking for common patterns, one finds that, you know, there are people who have had arguments, sometimes of, uh, on which they were right and liberals were wrong, but they've had arguments with liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. They've had arguments where like they've like had to fight liberal thinkers and antagonize liberal audiences and sometimes with justice but that tends to like lead to a like a sort of unmooring or search for a different audience and then this move which you you i think you're borrowing a term but you you refer to as a sort of diagonal move right or a diagonal Mm -hmm. yeah that term is naomi klein uses it but it comes from work by quinn slobodian Mm -hmm. one of his co-authors who was named in the review yeah, 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 and uh, so I, I think that's very interesting because I think that the, that is very clarifying. That and one way I sort of see that as is that you know you have the sort of traditional spectrum that people think about of left and right, but then you also have pro-system people and anti-system people. And there is a way in which, like you know, you know, in a time of crisis, the uh, uh, people who are anti-system can shift very suddenly, uh, especially if they find that the you know solutions that they might have hoped for aren't working, right? Like, I, I think that's the sort of material basis for these people shifting, that if there's a, some sort of, like, I mean, I, 
I know I'm, I'm going to put this forward to you. You might you might agree or disagree. But as you think like the failure of Bernie Sanders campaign or the inability of it to like, you know, like achieve as much as it could, well, many of us hope for, like, you know, is part of this. It's part of the unmooring that it left people who are like doubtful of this, who have legitimate critiques of the system. It left them, you know, searching for alternatives. I disagree with that slightly because the people who were most vocally supportive of Bernie largely did get on board with Joe Biden, mm-hmm. were willing to um, support pro-labor policies that Biden would consider and 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 also look at the influence of Bernie yeah. and his work with Biden. And actually, what some of the people you just named don't really come from that Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. They are more liberal. Those are the people who cross over. But I think that the Bernie thing gets to something else, which is that his, not his failure, but the fact that the huge amount of energy behind Bernie didn't really lead anywhere Mm -hmm. is symptomatic of a broader political dysfunction in which we don't seem able to actually change things for good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, in some ways, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I think your your response is good. And so let me reformulate that a little bit. In some ways, it's not so much Bernie people that are gravitating toward this, but mm. maybe people who shared, you know, the discontent of the Bernie movement, but didn't have a class politics, right? That right. they did not have, because I think that's a sort of commonality of all of all these people. Like there's a kind of anti-systems politics but that is not specifically moored either in the labor movement or in any sort of social democratic, you know, sense that we need to have specific policies, right? Like it's it's this more liberal and sometimes even left liberal discontent politics. Like like you know the system is sucks, man. You mm-hmm. know, like it's the 1960s, and it's it's interesting. A lot of us are you know there's a kind of boomer contingent of like 1960s people. You know, like, the system, man, it's just bad. And <laughs> oh yeah, no, and it would be the book doesn't do this, and someone would have to. Do do the research, but it will be interesting to see like the age breakdown of people who move from being sort of self-identified liberals to conspiracy curious, mm-hmm. maybe watching Tucker Carlson and nodding their heads more than they might think they yeah. would. So the book makes a distinction between this diagonal move. So the idea of people who still say they're liberals mm-hmm. become aligning with fascists. And a kind of older form and more familiar form of like the left to right movement that public figures have made. Like, remember that book, Exit Left? Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. About- no, which is a very traditional pattern yeah. in American history. You know, like I, I think, you know, throughout the 20th century, but really picking up steam during the Cold War and the, and the upheavals of the 60s, where you have pe- pe- people from the old left, like James Burnham and Whitaker Chambers mm-hmm. moving to the right. And then later in the 60s, people, liberals, like uh, ostensible liberals, let's say, like Norman Podhoretz and uh, Irving right. Crystal, you know, becoming mm-hmm. neoconservatives. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree that, that that what we're seeing now is not that. It's not a move from the, you know, traditional ideological left to the ideological right, in part because it's not so much a matter of ideology as sentiment, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we're in the age of vibes, right? And the, <laughs> the, the vibe, and so, so, so these are the, the people we're talking about. Never had that much of a coherent politics where they could right. say, like, you know, right. you know, I, I, I'm a liberal or I'm a, a leftist, and you know, here's my ten point doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. You're not like uh, Irving Howe or Spurnham, <laughs> right? Like, they're they're people who you know had a liberal vibe and uh, anti-establishment, and now they have like a Trump curious anti-establishment vibe. Right, so, so right. It's a and vibe think, shift rather than an ideological shift. 
I think actually what makes this book so good is that Naomi Klein is pretty ideological. Yeah. And that having a very clear set of principles and goals enables her to engage with all the chaos Mm -hmm. in a pretty grounded and compassionate way. Because the book is very clear about what's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm almost, uh, you know, to talk about the Canadian mafia element, I, I will maybe sort of credit that a little bit with her being Canadian. That just like, you know, I mean, our New Democratic Party, I wouldn't say it's a great social democratic party, like it has a lot of problems, but it is a social democratic party with, with a real socialist wing. And I think that that sort of politics, that sort of grounding is very useful, right? And when, you know, in terms of inoculation, I do think like, if there were like a revived Bernie movement, like another candidate that took up Bernie's politics, that would actually help a lot. Like, like I think that would diffuse the appeal because you would have then a sort of anti-systems politics that isn't, you know, cuckoo. And then, but then also if you do a couple, I mean, in lieu of, you know, like another presidential run by a, a strong socialist, like if you stay, you know, I think the fact that you have something like the DSA is actually mm-hmm. very useful. The, the, and the sort of revival of unionism and union activism that, you know, you're getting people that are being trained in a real class politics and trained in thinking about politics, tra- trained not like, you know, by ideological indoctrination, trained by the act of participating in politics. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, they're learning how to think about politics in a way that like cuts against this sort of conspiratorialism, right? Because um, that sort of activism, you know, like, it, it gets you out of the door, right? You're, you're just not scrolling through Twitter, you know, like... You're, no you're, you're one who's a member of DSA would ever get into a fight on Twitter. We <laughs> yeah, all know oh, okay, okay. No, 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 but you do get it. <laughs> you know, I agree with you more broadly that the yeah. practice of, like, having in-person or face-to-face, whether that's on Zoom or in-person, I guess, political conversations with people where there's, like, a shared trust mm-hmm. and a shared broadly a shared set of values is a really important experience for people to have. Yeah. I think the worry is that beyond people who have like the DSA politics, there isn't actually that much opportunity for that. And that's why I think liberals of the type that Nomi Wolf somewhat represented have been so susceptible. Like mm-hmm. to me, the question this book puts in a pretty gentle and kind way is like, what happened to, why did so many liberals go off the deep end? These were the mm. people who were saying, who were excoriating the Bernie bros in 2016. Yeah. And yet they're the ones who are watching Tucker Carlson and following like anti-vax mama YouTube account. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Or like, you know, to move away from Naomi Wolf. I mean, it, it is very curious to me that it's the uh, anti-Bernie bro liberals that are the people I'm seeing now who are fa- falling into the rabbit hole of anti-trans politics, you know, uh, including this more conspiratorial wing of that politics. And yeah, yeah, no, no, it's exactly, yeah, the, the lack of sort of like institutional social solidarity or like ways of expressing that. And and then, to, yeah, I mean, you're, 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 I, I take your point about the DSA because there's a lot of infighting. Although I think that if that, that I, I almost see that infighting as coming out of like social media. Like I actually mm-hmm. think like if I were advising the DSA, like, you know, the more actual meetings that you have where people actually have to like talk to each other and the less like it's like, you know, organizing online, like the mm-hmm. better, right? Like it did. But, but I mean, that maybe that speaks to, yeah, the, the role of social media as uh, a creator of this fragmentation and alienation. 
Oh, yeah. And also, I don't mean to single out DSA. I just yeah. also want to be realistic about yeah, the fact yeah. that people are tearing each other to pieces. <laughs> All political stripes are tearing each other to pieces online. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. no, it's, no it's, it's, uh, okay, good. So, I, 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 as you said, like, there's just so much to talk about in this book. Um, and I, I think uh, uh, it's something that uh, I'm hoping to revisit on a future occasion. But I will link to Laura's review in the show notes. I strongly encourage people to read that. And going beyond that, I actually strongly encourage people to read the book because, you know, like when I first found out just a couple of months ago that Naomi Klein was working on a book about Naomi Wolf, I will confess that my initial thought was that's a little bit too gimmicky and that's a little bit like of a, a narrow basis for a book. And to give her all credit, she proved me wrong. It's actually a book about, it's, it's, it's a central book about the uh, politics of our time. Yeah, and gee, we haven't even mentioned the the sustained engagement with Philip Roth that runs through this book, because it's kind of a retelling of Operation Shylock. Yeah, the yeah, book yeah. is just, as a, as a literary work, it's incredibly gripping. And even if yeah. you weren't interested in politics, it's compelling on that front, but. The ambition yeah, of well, the book no, is that's just really very interesting. I, you know what? Like, I actually think, I mean, you, you say like she doesn't defeat the doppelganger, but there's this like thing where, in some ways, Naomi Wolf has been good for Naomi Klein. In the sense, <laughs> I mean, Naomi Klein has always been like a really strong writer about politics, but like, I think some of the stuff that those who have met her personally know about her, her sort of slyness and humor, doesn't just didn't always come through as well on the page as it does in real life. And there were parts of herself that didn't she didn't show on the page because she's very much a sort of you know, serious political writer. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think that Naomi Wolf, to give her credit, has, has like opened up this literary side of Naomi Klein. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, because this book is funny and self-aware and wry pretty much throughout. There's a lot of kind of self-mockery and... Yeah. There's an, this isn't a spoiler, but there's an amazing part where she is confused with the supermodel Naomi Campbell that's well <laughs> worth checking out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. The, the, this is, well, maybe we'll revisit in the context of there's probably another Philip Roth uh, conversation to be had because he was a great generator of doppelgangers, not just in Operation Trilock, but really in all his books, all his characters are kind of, you know, doppelgangers of Philip Roth mm-hmm. in one way or another. And but also his biographer became his own doppelganger in a weird sort of way. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. And if you read this book, you'll see doubles everywhere. That's right, that's right. And I'll just end with like this kind of story that the novelist Richard Elman told in his own autobiography, name dropping. And he he's someone who suffered from many doppelgangers because he has the same name as the literary biographer Richard Elman. The, oh, the, I thought the, that's who you were no, talking no, no, about. There there was a novelist mm-hmm. also named Richard Elman. I think with one M, one N instead of two. Uh. But the the, uh, the novelist Richard Elman has a story of in the late sixties. He's at a party and this very attractive lady, you know, sort of comes on to him and they end up spending the night together. And uh, you know, they're having breakfast and uh, she says, "Oh, uh, you know, like I loved your book." And he said, "Which one?" And she said, "Of course, Portnoy's Complaint. Don't be modest." Oh, and <laughs> right, that's in that's in the Roth biography. That's in the Roth yes. biography. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, so the the the, the uh, Roth never had children, but he reproduced. By creating doppelgangers, <laughs> and so, so it's very fitting that this book makes such great use of him. But uh, once again, thank you, Laura, for uh, joining me. Thanks so much, Gita. It was great talking with you. 